on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week on the show... Composer and lyricist Stephen Sondheim died at home in Roxbury, Connecticut on the day after Thanksgiving. He was 91. We've put together a pseudo-awards show to celebrate Sondheim's life and work. No two-minute drill. No inside the huddle. Just the OBS team giving out the first and probably last Sondi Awards. If you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher Radio. Favorite the show, Apple Podcasts. Email us your hot takes on Sondheim's work, operaboxcore.gmail.com. Matt Cummings, we are going to cut straight to you as the introductory voice on this very special show. Thank you so much, George. This show was a, a real mixed bag to put together. A lot of pleasure, but also very, very sad. Um. <laughs> The question of how to break down Stephen Sondheim, like, could be a dissertation. I literally might write a dissertation about this at some point. But <laughs> I on... think you already have. I'm looking at the notes right now. <laughs> on the Friday after Thanksgiving, I started to drive back to Chicago uh, from my grandmother's house in northwestern Pennsylvania. And I decided that I wanted to listen to music instead of podcasts. Uh, and so I hit play on this list of Sondheim musicals that I had made months ago. And as I stopped for gas, I saw a text from my friends that Sondheim had died. Um, and my first reaction was honestly one of shock. And then I kind of laughed at myself for feeling shock because um, in a way, Stephen Sondheim felt completely eternal and immortal, uh, which is, a, is an astonishing thing to say about a man who had famously bad hygiene and had a heart attack in his 40s and lived <laughs> to be 91. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I tell I've listened to so much Sondheim all week. And really, I've avoided as many of the retrospectives as I could and the tributes to him. I, I couldn't totally avoid them because I am a human being and I do go on the internet. But I've tried to consume as much of his art on his own terms as I could before diving into other people's memories of him and of his works. Because um, as you start to read every post and every essay, it becomes really clear that every person who loves Sondheim feels a deeply personal and intimate relationship with not only his works, but like the man himself. Yes. And, so true. And that insight is from a tweet that I stole from one of my favorite culture writers, nice. Joanna Robinson at The Ringer. So like, see what yes. I mean? I had to like tunnel vision in and and see what we could come up with. But now I feel like I've gotten my own tribute out there. And I'm so happy to have you all along for the ride. <laughs> And yeah, it's it's one of those things that the, the the notion of it being deeply personal. So while you were driving back uh, from from a family holiday, I was having a belated family holiday with some of my family when I got a notification on my phone, and uh, I just sort of stood there looking at my phone and staring at it in shock, and knowing that something profoundly sad and deeply personal had just happened to me, and looking up at my southern non-musical family and realizing that nobody would be able to understand or digest just what this meant that this hero of mine had passed away so i just took off and i ran to the bathroom and i just had a quick three minute cry and just like had a moment and then i went back and drank miller lights with my uncles um but it was just again that moment of it being deeply personal it was as if a friend died it was yeah. it was really for me as if a friend died 
And there is so much work to listen to. I still haven't even gotten through all of it. I've been listening to it nonstop for a week and a half. Um, but this, he was truly like a kaleidoscope of the American musical. Yes. His first show that he worked on, West Side Story, that premiered in 1957. It lost yeah. Best Musical to The Music Man. Jeez. <laughs> Gypsy lost music, lost Best Musical to The Sound of Music and Fiorello in a tie. Fiorello? Yeah. A funny thing yes. happened on the way to the forum beat Oliver. Like, these are the type of musicals that were... Not Oliver Camacho, the, no. the show. <laughs> no, we would never. But the, <laughs> this is where the art form was when Sondheim entered the game. Uh, Oscar Hammerstein was famously his mentor and his predecessor in the importance of, like, developing character arc within a musical. Cole Porter was still writing musicals at that time and mm. songs. He was a master of those urbane and witty so turns of phrase. Uh, who could entertain through sheer linguistic razzle-dazzle. Um, and Sondheim's career like really takes a big turn in the 70s, where he picks up the mantle of cutting-edge shows like Cabaret and turns the American musical on its head and took it to much darker and thornier and like more ambiguous places. And they consist of these really elegant character studies where nothing really happens, but also everything happens because it's a deeply yes. like human and personal drama. Uh, his characters are constantly lying to each other, to themselves, and yet somehow reveal truths that the Broadway musical had never attempted to plumb the depths of before. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, by the time of his late, his most recent Broadway show, like Broadway is the domain of Disney. You've got Wicked. Right. You've got Hairspray. Like it's very much about adaptation and revival of already existing intellectual property property but like here's steven sondheim still churning out new music in like year 60 of his career yeah. <laughs> and the new work that does exist beside that corporate entertainment like wouldn't exist without the work that he had done decades earlier and these these works i mean you know they were all world premieres obviously right but they feel so ingrained in the culture that they all feel like revivals they feel like they've been with us forever i suppose some of them have and Every work of his, like, is so of its time, but also transcendent of it. Um, he, like, it's his his work is very rooted in that kind of d deeper, darker, psychic exploration that was happening in the 70s in film, in TV, in music. Um, and then in the 80s, he adapts into, like, a kinder, but kind of wryly, tragically hopeful kind of uh, thought leader among, like, all of that conservative cynicism and the turbulence of the 80s. And then we like move into the 90s and he's writing things like Passion, which has one of the most unlikable protagonists in theater <laughs> and uh, Assassins, which is a show about would-be assassins and successful assassins of American presidents and about how the American dream was a lie and only leads to inevitable violence and how a gun is how you, uh, you know, take it upon yourself to fulfill your greatest destiny. And there's like a very high concept revival of assassins happening right now that draws on footage of what happened on january 6th like talk about trenchant talk about timely that's that's universal matt what about what about the man himself is he like, also a kaleidoscope yeah it, our understanding of him is is similarly kaleidoscopic like because of all you get are like these little different colored pieces of glass that reflect and refract and uh it's a marvelously like ever-changing image he's kind of always the same and also always developing and always becoming new and like pursuing something different um he's an endless puzzle of a man who deeply loved puzzles and parallels and percussive alliteration yes all those cryptic crosswords <laughs> he used to write i'm a huge <laughs> fan of the cryptic crosswords. he he lived many lifetimes forged close relationships with entire generations of the theater community 
a man who was deeply loved and cherished uh, and practically, if not fully worshipped, both in his time and uh, evidently after. Um, and in part, I think this is due to his sheer longevity as a creator, like the the leading creative genius of his time and the transformation from Stephen Sondheim to Stephen Sondheim. Uh, like, as I was listening to this discography, I, I was struck by how early tributes to Sondheim start appearing. Um, in 1976, yeah, yeah. there are reviews yeah. that are made up just of songs mm. from other Sondheim shows or mm-hmm. like songs that were cut from from Sondheim shows. It's called Side by Side by Sondheim. Great name. Play on a song from uh, Company. So 1976, that's pre-Sweeney Todd. That's pre-Into the Woods. That's pre-Sunday in the Park with George. Um, he was already legendary even then. And there's been a tribute to him every couple of years since. And through it all, his work hardly ever dips in quality as he manages to maintain like this level of both craftsmanship and novelty with every twist and turn of his career. And the shows swing wildly from topic to topic, from um, sound, from sound universe to sound universe, and they're breathtakingly virtuosic in their transformations. And yet, they all sound like Sondheim. They're they're all tied together with that definitive authorial voice, um, with by a mind that's always seeking a new challenge and this distinctly humanist heart. And I really think that that is why we who love Sondheim love his work and come back to it again and again. And like discover something new every time, and it's that it's that unmistakable humanity in everything single thing he put up on the stage. Like even Sweeney Todd has deeply, deeply human moments, and like for all the jokes, for all the witty lyrics, like that is the core that that keeps this repertory alive. Has deeply human pie fillings as well. Yeah, <laughs> nicely, nicely put. We'll get to those, Weston. Don't you worry. <laughs> you know, you got to be careful with your coriander. You do. <laughs> as we start handing out the Sandies on the show, what's our What's our first category and what are our pieces that have been nominated? When I think of Sondheim music, the the songs that stay in my head, the songs that I think really um, drive home his most authentic compositional voice are the solos that he writes for his female characters because Correct. they are the most they are almost to a rule the most complex character in the show. And like mm-hmm. I said, like these characters so often are lying through their teeth. The <laughs> um, the lyrics of the song play on double meanings and subtext with their illusions and psychological explorations and they are just a joy to like listen to as much as they are to interpret and to like plumb the depths of yeah and just to sort of dovetail on that a little bit uh, you know he, the, Matt mentioned some of the, the characteristics of like the lying through the teeth and lying to themselves and lying to everybody else but to take a softer turn to it uh, Sondheim wrote women as complex characters Mm -hmm. before pretty much anybody else did in terms of uh in terms of live musical performances whether it was a musical theater frankly in opera you know not many operas are passing the Bechdel test even now uh but Sondheim wrote women as these characters that were multi-dimensional multi-faceted they were Anita Marie like Mama Rose like those are Sondheim Mm -hmm. creations too Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not all good. They're not all bad. They're beautifully flawed. He allowed them to have emotions and voices and speak their truths in ways that no one had before. Uh, and it's it's really interesting to see, you know, even the women of the category that we're you know about to talk about, sort of the the trajectory of who each of these women were uh, and their stories. They were all different and unique. But again, to go back to the word we've used a lot, human. They were terribly human. 
So our Who nominees are. Nominees are? <laughs> First, we've got from from Merrily We Roll Along, we've got Not a Day Goes By. One of the closest things to like a standard tune. Not a lot of crossover hit tunes in Sondheim. Send in the Clowns, maybe. Being Alive, maybe. Mm-hmm. They didn't really like chart on the pop charts the way some of the older stuff did. And I think it's just because like they're too um, grounded in the context of the show that they don't always play the same way out of context. Merrily, yeah. uh, but this is sung performed very frequently by Bernadette Peters. And it's about a woman who uh, has learned that her husband is having an affair and she has to leave him, but she can't stop thinking about him. Uh, we've also got Another Hundred People, which is uh, that one of the anchor songs of Company, which is a show about a man who is thoroughly, or a woman, depending on the production, uh, who is very afraid of commitment and, and dates around and has all these friends of married couples and this is one of his girlfriends who sings a song about New York City. And it just, it feels like New York. Like, it's bustling, and it's buzzing, and the lyrics are all about, like, not really ever getting to know anyone because another hundred people are always getting on and off of a train. Um, from Follies, we've got Losing My Mind, which is, like, a torch song pastiche about... Um, deluded being deluded and lying to yourself and and walking around thinking about how you are so in love with this person and they are not gonna love you back because that's not what the relationship really is and from company we have the iconic ladies who lunch uh there aren't a ton of standalone songs but this is definitely one that goes out there it's been the subject of memes it's been parodied in so many different ways this is uh this is from a character in Company who is uh, a woman of of a more advanced age who has seen it all, done it all, has some regrets, but mostly has apathy towards the generations below her and the and the social class circles of the women who married well and do little else, but are supposedly having these enviable lives. And so she sings this fake tribute to these women who are, in her mind, vapid and ineffective uh and it ends with everybody rise 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 and if you've ever heard this piece you hear those rises you'll stand you'll stand you'll leave your seat you will rise uh and then finally from into the woods uh we have moments in the woods that's sung by the baker's wife and speaking of you know going back to that sort of humanist equality this is a character who has uh has been given a task and is set out on a quest to do it has a little bit of a distraction along the way that actually leads to uh something that she never would have imagined that she would do which was be unfaithful to to her husband however you know not strongly she feels about him at different times and it's her entire character arc really happens in this two and a half minutes of this song which is good because she's immediately stepped on by a giant and dies right afterwards so it's great that she gets her moment Uh, but it really is sort of that start to finish like she finally (laughs) understands what about her journey is is worth it and the lessons that she's learned along the way well, for me, I want I want to hop right on it and vote. I, I, Ladies Who Lunch from Company for me is just in this list, and it's hard to pick. Is so strong as you. It was say, hard to pick just five. I'll bet, I'll bet. You know, <laughs> but it is, it is, it's it's for a actor who is older. It has so much bite in it. It has it has so much kind of like vinegar, and I just think it's it's a complex piece of music. It's a complex piece of writing for me. I would vote for that as best solo female. 
I would say that uh, the one that sticks for me, and mainly because it has a recognizable melody and can be sung, uh, is Losing My Mind. And plus, it feels very, you know, bewitched, bothered, and bewildered. And I love that era of American songbook. Mm. Um, I know that the words are much more clever in this. But um, yeah, it, like you said, it harkens back to torch songs of yore. And I'm nothing if not a sentimental, <laughs> nostalgic, loving person. That's from Wicked, but we'll, we'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm What's kind from of Wicked? I'm kind What's of torn uh, between company and uh, uh, another hundred people and ladies who lunch. But since I feel like I'm about to be the tiebreaker here, I have to go with which one will break the tie. I'm going to side with George. I'm going to give it to Ladies Who Lunch for the very first best solo female category of the Sundays. A, a truly deserving winner, as they all will be. Uh, They're all winners. It is an honor to be nominated. Oliver, you read you read my mind and my heart. Losing my mind, I think, is just like an unparalleled composition. But I, I love all these songs deeply. Very much so. So here's to the girls on the go. Everybody tries. Look into their eyes and you'll see what they know. Everybody dies. A toast of that invincible bunch. The dinosaur surviving the crunch. Let's hear it for the ladies who lunch. Everybody rise. 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 When you're talking about Sondheim, what peop- what most people who, even if you're not Sondheim appreciators, what people know that they should like about Sondheim are his lyrics. And that's because they really are as good as people say. They are so intricate. They are so, so virtuosic in his use of meter, in his use of internal rhyme, in his use of alliteration, in his use of just like sheer outrageous things to come up with to make the rhyme. Um, oh, yeah. And just like he, the, the master of like modern patter song, just the entire time. There's no musical of his where there's like a moment where there isn't some kind of wordplay happening, which is always my favorite part of the Sondheim show. And in every single type of style of patter too, oh, like yeah. in Pacific Overtures, he does a Gilbert style number. Mm. Um, some of our nominees are in like other different types of pastiches. Um, and Sondheim has a really interesting philosophy about the difference between poetry and lyrics, which is that poetry is meant to be uh, processed visually it's meant to be processed asynchronously so you can go back you can read over you can look again you can read again uh whereas lyrics need to be understood and comprehended in real time uh even then i think that he is being like it's a little too cute by half because even though you might understand <laughs> a lot of those Sondheim lyrics the first time you hear them, it's kind of like going to a Britain opera and you're like, so I do understand what words came out of your mouth, but like, what does it mean? <laughs> it, it will take you men- multiple listens to actually like break down what he it's is always the alliterative composers. I think that's yeah. what does it. Benjamin Britten, Stephen Sondheim, like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and what, still, like, I know these shows very well. I've listened to them many times. I 
keep finding new things that make me laugh. I keep finding new things that like are heartbreaking. All the time. It's kind of like when you go back and rewatch Arrested Development and you're like, you started setting that up, that joke up seven episodes ago. <laughs> I see you. There's always money in the banana stand. <laughs> and just like this uncanny ability that he has to set up chains of sounds and rhymes like dominoes and like watch them fall. And when you think it's going to stop, like, they keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going. It is, it's so satisfying to experience that dexterity and nimbleness of his lyricist abilities. And what I also appreciate is the, you know, the matching, yes, we have the text. Yes, it rhymes well. Yes, it sounds well. The prosody of it all. Mm -hmm. He's able not just to get the lyrics to work well, but they're working in time. They're working in emphasis. They're working in stress. It's it's very musical, the way that he writes his texts. Mm -hmm. Who are those nominees then for best outrageous rhyme slash lyric? Uh, coming back from Merrily We Roll Along, there's a song Bobby and Jackie and Jack, which is like a take on an, a cabaret number from the 60s about the Kennedy administration. Um, and one of the lyrics in it uh, is, we'll get Leontine Price to sing her medley from Meistersinger. <laughs> Perfect. Good. I love that. One of the best One of the best examples of that like chain of sounds that just keeps going and going comes from that I can think of comes from Follies, the story of Lucy and Jesse. Um, this is the counterpart to of the Losing My Mind song. This is the Follies number for the other lead female about like being stuck between two realities Then you don't really want either one of them. Um, and it goes, Lucy is juicy, but terribly drab. Jesse is dressy, but cold as a slab. Lucy wants to be dressy. Jesse wants to be juicy. Lucy wants to be Jesse and Jesse Lucy. <laughs> As yep. a, as someone who's Yikes. been on stage, uh, that would be one of those lines that would stress me out that I would say those last <laughs> lines wrong. Steven Sondheim has no mercy for for the tongue twisters. And when there's you're on multiple stage. verses. Yeah, that it's great. One, later in that song, he uses "that's the sorrowful pricey," like who <laughs> the vocabulary. The vocabulary on this man. Um, <laughs> in company, you could drive a person crazy. This one's pretty famous. It got mo- mentioned in most of the tributes to him. Yeah. When a person's personality is personable, he should not sit like a lump. It's harder than a matador coercing a bull to try to get you off of your rump. Jeez. Deranged. <laughs> Truly deranged. <laughs> I feel like maybe in the writing process, he got to this point where he was like, this'll do, this'll be fine. And now it's become one of these like, Highly revered. It's been. Can you believe he did it? I yeah. I kind of can't. Um, moving on, we're gonna go into Into the Woods in the prologue. One of my personal favorite cameo characters that not everybody celebrates, but I love her. Uh, and that's Jack's mother. And in the prologue to uh to Into the Woods, Jack's mother is trying to convince her son to get rid of his beloved pet cow, Milky White. And Milky White is uh she she ain't doing great. Uh, and so there's a really amazing little passage from her uh look at her meaning the cow there are bugs on her dugs there are flies on her eyes there's a lump on her rump big enough to be a hump but this is my personal favorite part we've no time to sit and dither while her withers wither with her <laughs> no one keeps a cow for a friend it makes me so happy every time i see jack's mother come i'm like i'm waiting for that line and when it happens i'm like yes it's so good <laughs> 
And he was also really great just with some really leaning in again on the prosody of and and the way that these things rhyme. Uh, there's a moment in Could I Leave You, which is a tune in Follies, where uh, the A lot of Phyllis love in this category. <laughs> a lot of Phyllis love in this category. Uh, the the wife of a relatively wealthy man, and she's a... Uh, there, he, there's a, an argument that's happening about the possibility of divorce and she does this tune called could i leave you that's all about you know oh how could i possibly make it on my own turns out i'm doing pretty great and you've been gone and i've been gone so you know kick rocks uh but one of my favorite lines from that is uh putting thoughts of you aside in the south of france would i think of suicide darling shall we dance yeah. he rhymed you aside and suicide <laughs> well done Stephen. and this is the tip of the iceberg people. oh absolutely oh, yeah. Yeah. she gets in there she gets down i don't know i don't know how you two sense. came up with with just five well i got to uh go first in picking the winner last time so oliver let's have you go first this time and then over to weston well this was easy for me because um as, as many people know, I love Don Upshaw, and I know the story of Lucy and Jesse from her I Wish It So album. And I also saw Follies uh, here at Chicago Shakespeare Theater. I remember when this song came, I was like, this is a virtuoso performance. Like when you hear somebody do that, and they're like smiling, and they're just like completely in the pocket, it's like, wow, that is all right. <laughs> I give it to you, you know. <laughs> I'm kind of thinking uh, I think the same thing for slightly different reasons I'm just a really big fan of obscure Minnesotan burgers so I gotta give it to Juicy Lucy as well <laughs> well it's gonna be a trifecta on this particular one because I will also nominate or vote for the um, story of Lucy and Jesse from Follies as well let's take a listen story that should make you cry about two unhappy dames let us call them lucy x and jesse y which are not their real names now lucy has the purity along with the unsurety that comes with being only 21 jesse has maturity and plenty of security whatever you can do with them she's done Given their advantages, you may ask why the two ladies have such grief. This is my belief in brief. Terribly drab. Jesse is dressy, but cold as a slab. Lucy wants to be dressy. Jesse wants to be juicy. Lucy wants to be Jesse. And Jesse, Lucy, you see, Jesse is racy, but hard as a rock. Lucy is lacy, but dull as a smock. Jesse wants to be lacy. Lucy wants to be Jesse. That's the pitiful bracy. It's very messy. That was Jan Maxwell from the uh, 2011 revival of follies uh singing the role of phyllis stone uh if that musical is simply dynamite there's a really pretty good uh, bootleg of the kennedy center performance with her and uh bernadette peters in the two uh leading female roles on youtube that i recommend checking out because it's a show that um doesn't make a lot of sense when you're just listening to it the first time but once you (laughs) see what's going on it is a lot easier to decipher uh and that kind of deciphering is very typical of Sondheim's music as a whole. 
Um, he is, of course, known as a, as a lyricist. He started as a lyricist for um, Julie Stein and Gypsy, and before that, right. Leonard Bernstein in West Side Story. Um, and his music is often understood to be like atonal because oh, it not not by, the, not by this not, crew, yeah. not by Weston Williams. <laughs> um, one thing that I did learn the same about voice <laughs> one, one thing I did learn about uh, Stephen Sondheim and you know, some of the tributes I was reading because uh, I'm sure we'll, we might talk about this a little bit later. But he famously uh, quote unquote hated opera. Mm-hmm. Um, but he uh, but uh, the interview that they that they had it. Are there any exceptions? And Sondheim was like, Oh yeah, Wozzeck. And I'm like. <laughs> Brother, <laughs> I feel you. It's it's true that his music is like less overtly melodic and like sweeping, especially compared to his birthday twin, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Um, but even though that they and this music is, it can be thorny and it can take really unexpected turns. Um, but that is very much by design because we talked about Sondheim, the puzzle maker again, and that was uh, earlier. And that was very true. Like he would literally write crossword puzzles, loved doing crossword puzzles. He Mm. has talked a lot about how he sees the art of composition as a puzzle and he works through it in terms of like motif and thematic transformation and expressive harmony. Um, and really, I think he's a late romantic Wagnerian at heart. Um, I actually kind of prefer his version of Wagnerianism because you don't even know that you're hearing these motifs being um, like transformed and woven together. But if you really sit down and break down some of this music, um, like there, I, I watched one time at about an hour long YouTube video about how all of the songs in Sweeney Todd are uh, different inversions of the D.A.C. theme. Um, and I didn't agree with I'd all of that. them, but like 92% of them, I'm like, yeah, I'll give you that. Um, <laughs> and it is, th- this puzzle maker trait is like such a common trope and it's very consistent throughout his life, throughout his composition. And I I find it so satisfying to listen to his music because it so it holds together like as a whole much more than most musicals, certainly, and like many operas, frankly. Um. He's such a puzzle maker, even, that he was one time, this is one of my favorite Sondheim fun facts, he was approached to be a script doctor for the movie Clue. Uh, and that said old that he, chestnut. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just and watched I that last week. He did Too a draft hurry. of it, but it didn't, um, it didn't take, he did not end up. <laughs> now, what's interesting, right, of course, you talk about Sondheim now, the composer, but uh, often he didn't do it alone. Jonathan Tunick, very much part of that picture. So he did, he wrote the music and lyrics to most of his best shows, sometimes just the lyrics. But the real partnership, I think, comes in when you wor- when you look at the tunic uh, collaborations, um, the way that motives from earlier in the musical are laid down in the orchestra over completely different memories. And not only are they like just there, but they expose something deeper about the moment of character. Like it always comes back to character if you take one thing away from Sondheim. Um, And it's a really important partnership that I think doesn't get as much attention outside of like the theater knowledge circles. Um, And this really come this compositional like facility really comes through when he does group numbers, because this is we're not just talking about one day more where it's a lot of a lot of melodies that are all over one five one. And then of course they fit together. Like these are weird. This is weird music. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. somehow when you put it all together, it illuminates something that you had no idea was there to begin with. Uh, Yeah. I mean, the counterpoint of these, these group members will, will break your brain. Uh, Often they come in 
you know, sort of at, at points when you really need to untangle what, what is happening within the plot or a moment that really needs to be highlighted. But again, considering how complicated and how confusing the music is, and there's so many passing lines going back and forth, it's like, how in the world are you going to be untangling something when you're actually like braiding a whole bunch of things together? But it's, it's so fascinating to see how he's able to really tell the story through the actual song as opposed to, um, you know, just letting dialogue handle it. Yeah. We're looking at partnerships and collaboration. So this leads to the Sandy for best group number four nominees in this category. Matt and Ashley lay it down and Weston, we're going to start with you uh, with the voting. So the first one that I suggested is probably not one that a lot of people would have thought of. And it's a little bit of a dark horse. Uh, and it's only about a minute and 20 seconds long. Uh, it's a piece from Marilyn We Roll Along called Opening Doors. Uh, again, as if you know anything about the plot, the story kind of goes in reverse. And so this is something that's a little bit towards the end. And it's the three central characters all as young upstarts. At, in their time in New York City when they're really trying to get uh, their music noticed or their writing noticed or their book published. And it's about that moment in your life when you first start getting opportunities and you've been really scrapping and working and then all of a sudden people are starting to notice your work for the first time and sort of the the naive uh, excitement that comes with that when it's really happening for you the first time. Uh, and as many people talk about how Finishing the Hat is, a, is sort of an autobiographical piece about Sondheim, he's actually mentioned that this piece is also very autobiographical because I, in the beginning in the 1950s, that's when he's really trying to get people to notice him and notice his writing and so the, the emotions that are portrayed in that that very short minute and 20 seconds are so many of the things that he was feeling as a writer in the 50s. Yeah, I think he said that that's the only song that he considers to be truly autobiographical. And it's not for nothing that the line, um, I'll let you know when Stravinsky has a hit, takes place. <laughs> Within open doors. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and from from the short and pretty sweet to the also short but deeply, deeply complicated is uh, Into the Woods and Your Fault, which is, a, which is a quintet. And again, this is that moment where everybody is finally getting to express their frustration. And the thing that is happening for the surviving characters in this moment and is they need someone to blame. And so they're going around in circles. Wait, but it's your fault. Wait a minute. It's your fault. Oh, but I did this. I wouldn't have done that if you weren't there. So that's your fault. But it's all happening in this like musical fever dream of rhythmic percussive, but also melodic. Uh, again, I'll use the word fever dream. And it just goes by <laughs> so quickly, but also you get all of the emotion that every single one of those characters is feeling right in that moment. Um, my first selection is one that I may or may not have come up with this category specifically so that I could nominate <laughs> this song, uh, which come, which is from the end of act, near the end of act one of Sweeney Todd, the ladies in their sensitivities kiss me double duet quartet um, that blends the Antony and Joanna singing about trying to plan their escape from Judge Turpin's house with Judge Turpin and the Beatles singing about going to get a shave at Sweeney Todd. And the way that your attention just ping pongs between the four lines moment by moment um, is really completely like supported and carried again by the Jonathan Tunick orchestrations that have such swell and such drive home. It Like this is one of those songs that I finished and I'm like, that wasn't enough. I need to listen to it again. My other selection is uh, also from Into the Woods, but it is the ensemble that starts it all and introduces 95,000 <laughs> fairytale characters, what their plots are, what they are looking for, and that is the one and only titular Into the Woods. <laughs> well, if tough, I'm going to be the one to... 
Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it from here. Here we go. I will admit I do have some uh, bias in this one because uh, Into the Woods was my first encounter with Sondheim. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't... It's hard to pick between the two Into the Woods selections, but I think I'm going to give the edge to the prologue just because as soon as I first heard the prologue, it has not left my mind for the past 15 or so years <laughs> because it is, I just, every time I, I think, I'm like, Into the Woods, Into the Woods, it just, it's, it's there. It just exists there. There's something about it that it really does do not just like uh, a musical complexity, but it's also character. It's also establishing motivations for the entire show. Um, it's very theatrical, but it, in a way that, you know, every bit like is a necessary piece of information for the audience to know. And there's like this economy to it. That's just, you know, that people still like get in their heads, which should be way too complex to really put into music. So I have to go with the prologue from into the woods. All right. So there's a vote for that. I'll go next and Oliver can wrap it up. First of all, I do think there's an omission on this list. All the lists are going to have omissions for me from forum. Everybody ought to have a maid is like the quintessential (laughs) group number. So I do think that that should be on here. Uh, I'm also going to go with, into the woods but i'm going to stick with your fault i think rhythmically it's more complex it mm -hmm. does further the story well it recaps the story it furthers the story and man performing that is a real it's a music director's nightmare (laughs) i learned i learned it 20 years ago i could still sing it now that's how hard i had to beat it into my head I feel like I am a opera neophyte saying Omio Babino Caro is my favorite tune. <laughs> and I totally appreciate these deep cuts and these very thoughtful um, ideas about what constitutes like a great group, num- group number. And it makes me want to go back and listen to uh, that section of Sweeney Todd and to learn about opening doors. But I have to say, like when I saw Into the Woods for the first time, uh, I thought yeah. that the prologue was a masterpiece. Yeah. I was like, this yeah. is genius. Yeah. How many more characters can we meet? This has <laughs> incredible energy, and yet I'm totally engaged, even though I just got you know, 13 minutes worth of introduction thrown at me. I'm totally on board. It was very close for me. I will say that too. And I, yes, again, Into the Woods is my first Sondheim musical. I remember it from the great performances, PBS master. Peace Theater. Uh, yeah, crazy. All right, let's take a listen. Into the woods, it's time to go. It may be all in vain, I know. Into the woods, but even so, I have to take the journey. Into the woods, the path is straight. I know it well, but who can tell? Into the woods to lift the spell. Into the woods to visit mother. Into the woods to fetch the thing. To make the potion. To go to the festival. Into the woods without regret. The choice is made. The task is set. Into the woods, but not for anyone. I'm on the journey. Into the woods to get. I wish I don't care how the time is now. Into the woods to sell the cow. Into the woods to get the money. Into the woods to lift the spell. To make the potion. To go to the festival. Into the woods to grandmother's house. Into the woods to grandmother's house. The way is clear. The light is To be afraid there. There's something in the glade there. <laughs> Into the woods without delay, but careful not to lose the way. Into the woods, who knows what may be lurking on the journey. Into the 
Into the woods to get the thing that makes it worth the journeying. Into the woods to see the cave, to sell the cow, to make the potion, to see, to sell, to get, to bring, to make, to live, to go to the festival. Into the woods. And that clip does come to you from the PBS Great Performances uh, video, which is always worth watching. Um, If you were to take a theater history course and there was only one thing they could talk about Sondheim, the thing that they would probably talk about is a concept musical, which sounds very unapproachable, but actually, um, as we've talked about, just means that they're all about character. Um, there's There's usually not an overarching plot. It's more like a set of vignettes that explore different variations of a theme or a character. Um, Even though there's not necessarily a lot of dance, there can be some dance and there will be plenty of spectacle, especially if you're talking about like Follies, which was made to look like the Ziegfeld Follies, or A Little Night Music, which is basically um, a Viennese operetta transformed (laughs) into a Sondheim musical, or like (laughs) uh, Sweeney Todd's steampunk realness. Um, And even though it's a concept musical, that's not to say that they're not emotional. This is a lot of times where he excelled, where you're just going along and you're minding your own business and you're living your life. And this feels that the verisimilitude is off the charts. And then wham, the bottom drops out and you are just weeping. Uh, And Ashley, you had a term for this that I that I loved. I think it's so fitting. Uh, what term did I have? I you called it. Forgotten. You called it the gut punch moment, where you just oh, like, yes, thank oh, you. oh, and you like the master of irony and turns of phrase, and uh, it really goes to the fact that a lot of these songs, like when you listen to them in context, are completely different than what you think is happening. Um, and I think you'll see that in some of our nominees. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the other things I want to mention that this is. One of the things that made his initial musicals that were all his, meaning he wrote music, he wrote lyrics, was that he really chose the songs to drive the action instead of this unaccompanied dialogue. So, so many of the reasons that you've got these musical gut punches is because that's how he drives the actual narrative of the story. He doesn't wait for spoken dialogue. So it isn't action, action, action. The song is a simple emotional moment. Action. action. No, it's action all the way through. And there's very little dialogue. And it's all about those musical moments. So our first nominee we've got um, from Company. Side by side by side, what would we do without you? Which is a song um, where Bobby is talking about being the third wheel and all of these relationships with his married friends uh, because he is not in a committed relationship himself and like kind of has no idea of how to go about doing that. And there's this one line like towards the end of it where they they say the the B section of this song is all of them singing, what would we do without you? What would we do without you? And they say that again and again and again. And the one of the last times they say it, he says, just what you usually do. And you're, <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you, listening to company in your early 30s is a very different experience <laughs> than listening to it in your 20s. <laughs> um <laughs> My other nominee uh, I'm, I'm is, crying over here. is talking about um, just like how that context of the show is can make something that sounds so cheerful be like absolutely heartbreaking. And that is the song from Follies. Uh, You're going to love tomorrow. Love will see us through. Um, Follies, like I said, is like can be kind of hard to follow. And that's because you have these four main characters and they are shadowed by the by their ghosts of their younger selves. <laughs> Um, and so they are talking about all these things that happened when they're young. And then you see the younger versions act out what actually happened. And surprise, surprise, like no one is being honest. You could even say that they are trapped in 
follies of their own oh. making. Um, <laughs> and so this comes toward the end of the musical, uh, like right before Lucy and Jesse and Losing My Mind. Uh, and it is the four young ghosts singing the song about how happy they're going to be in their marriages and what great couples they make and how love will see us through till something better comes along. And you're sitting there like after watching them fight for two hours and you're just like, guys, this is not it. It's not it. <laughs> and it's, it's like reverse. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Reverse foreshadowing. It'll get you. It'll get you every time. Uh, another one of the things that we wanted to bring up uh, was once again, we're going to go back to the into the woods and we're going to go back to moments in the woods. Again, this piece for the baker's wife, it is it is musically a very lovely piece, but it really is. It's that idea of the grass is always greener or is it? Nope. Turns out it's not. And the thing I had was really good before. And she has to really stray from who she thinks she is to understand that the things that she had were exactly what she wanted. It took her cheating on her husband to understand how much she loved her husband and how much she wanted to stay with her husband. And uh, this this passage really is the thing that kind of got me. Because again, not just about like fidelity or infidelity teaches you lessons. That's not what I'm trying to say here. The point is, is that once you have a moment to sort of go macro, pull the lens back, and really see what else is out there, you start to really genuinely appreciate what's in front of you and what you've been given. Uh, and the text of this that really kind of sticks with me is, and when you get what you wish only just for a moment, let the moment go. Don't forget it for a moment, though. Just remembering you've had an and when you're back to or makes the or mean more than it did before. So that... uh. Yeah, that that I should have that needle pointed on a pillow somewhere. <laughs> uh, and in the uh, the less sentimental, more topical, genuinely concerning uh, set of things, I'd like to also throw into the ring uh, the gun song from Assassins. We've mentioned Assassins before, uh, and again, it is about it's a it's a psychological deep dive into potential and successful assassins of United States presidents. And it's, you know, it's still controversial to this day. Every production gets some sort of angry letter that comes out. But <laughs> the gun song itself is so beautifully simple and not at all simple. Uh, in in the it, it takes four of these different assassins, some successful, some not, and some of them for reasons of we're trying to unite a country and some are just, I... I've always been spat upon and looked down upon, and this is my way to get noticed. And it really gives you a chance to look inside the minds of these folks. Uh, but the text of it is, you know, really about it takes a lot of people to make a gun. Think about all the people whose hands it has to pass through before it gets to mine. Uh, but what we can use this for, you can change the world with a gun for better or for worse. And that final quartet uh, of of those four singers the harmonies are so beautiful and barbershoppy and sentimental and you're almost along for the ride with them until you realize they're talking about guns and shooting people and it's like oh oh now i just don't know how to feel uh but yeah it's a uh, especially kind of given who and where we are in this great old us of a uh the gun song was really challenging when the musical was first released but if you go and listen to it now it will still be beautifully painful a great batch of nominees here. I'll go first again. We're back to our, our starting tour. I think this is a no-brainer. I think it, it has to be Gunsong from Assassins. There is nothing that mixes the brutality of those images, of that music, of the essence of what that song is about, which is still now, as Ashley said, 
so controversial. That is my vote. What, what I'm learning today is that um, these pieces and these words are addressing sentiments and feelings um, that have not yet been addressed by opera. And maybe this is why so many of my opera colleagues uh, find, you know, solace in Sondheim. Oh, I just made up a thing, you know, and they they feel seen. Look <laughs> at Sondheim. Stephen Sondheim over here. Yeah. Um, and I have to say that um, I have seen Company, and I've seen I think a gay version, and maybe I had I'm not even sure what I saw anymore, but um, yeah, Company side by side just sort of. Uh, is becomes very personal and, and hits me in in my spots. <laughs> Show mm. me on this doll <laughs> where this song hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so cheerful sounding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I I have to say that uh, Assassins is probably the Sondheim work that I know the least about. Um, but uh. It's always been the one that whenever someone mentions what it's about, I'm like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Uh, and uh, listening to just a little bit of uh, of the gun song, I'm like, I think that's the one because I feel like for me, Sondheim doesn't always resonate as much in those like really, really emotional points in the same way, like, you know, a full like 20 minute aria can and in, in something a little bit larger scale. Resurrection. Um, <laughs> but, but, but you're right, Oliver. It's all about how... Uh, how it relates to what's going on in the topicality of it all. And because of that, I think I probably have to give it to the gun song from Assassins. And all you have to do is crook your little finger, hook your little finger out. Shit, I shot it. You can change the world, change the world. Simply follow through and look. Your little finger can slow them down to a crawl. Show them all, big and small. It took a little finger no time to. Change the world. A gun kills many men before it's done. Hundreds long before you shoot the gun. Men in the mines and in the steel mills Men in machines who died for what? Something to buy? A watch, a shoe, a gun, a thing to make the bosses richer But a gun claims many men before it's done Just one And that recording that you just heard was from what I believe is the 2004 uh, studio recording of the Assassin's uh, musical soundtrack. Matt and Ashley, as we move to best solo male voice for a Sondi award, talk to us about the, the biographical Sondheim overlap here with this category. Sondheim, the man himself, is like a kaleidoscope as i said um and also like a bit of an onion to peel back there's a lot of layers much to like him. ogres uh-huh yeah. um and how much 
we know about the man versus how much we know about his work. Like, is it's very asymmetrical. Um, and what's interesting is, as we talked about a little bit before uh, with Opening Doors, is like he has staunchly refused to admit that any of his work is directly autobiographical. But you would be foolish to miss the parallels <laughs> between um, a work like Company, which is about, you know, a disaffected single man living in New York in the 70s and his uh, inability to commit at the same time that like Sondheim is, was famously single for a very long time. He got married a couple years ago. He was like in the closet when he was younger. He is a gay, he is an openly gay man. Um, he did date Anthony Perkins from Strange. Uh, Psycho, Psycho, which is Anthony Perkins Wild. for me is like always 30 and Sondheim is always 80. So I, I understand <laughs> that they were at one point the same age, but like it just Somewhere doesn't make there. sense. Um, he, or Sunday in the Park with George, which even though he says like is not about him, like it's about a man who was ahead of his time not being respected for devoting his whole life to artwork. Like, come on, Steve. Um, but he is, I think, very often thought of as being misanthropic because his characters are so neurotic, because his characters, like, are so biting and there's so much satire and irony in his work. Um, and he's been quoted by people who met him for the first time and, like, were terrified to meet him as be as saying, like, I'm not my lyrics. I'm Stephen yeah. Sondheim. Like, there is a really, there, there's really a generosity there. There's a magnanimity there. He um, is an incredible educator. Uh, there's a clip of him uh, at a, uh, teaching a masterclass uh, with a young student who's singing Not Getting Married Today. Uh, and she's just absolutely nailing it. And he is sitting in the back beaming with pride. Like, it's such a powerful moment to see in, like, that just really encapsulates, I think, who he is as an individual and, like, how, like, where his love comes from, where it shows itself. Like, he, his family relationships were really bad. Like, he had a terrible relationship with his mother. Oscar Hammerstein was his mentor and, like, also kind of his lifeline and in showed him, like, a functional family. Um, And so, just like the, like his male characters are just as complicated and just as conflicted as his, as his female characters. That's just like a little bit more mainstream in terms of musical theater right. to have complicated <laughs> male characters. Um, and so my, our nominations for best solo male are of course, from Sunday in the park with George finishing the hat, um, a song that is so committed to the bit of being a pointillist artist that he has written in pointillism very <laughs> dot 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 the his girlfriend's name is dot for crying out loud yeah. um, and, <laughs> it's a little on the nose <laughs> uh, and then also company being alive just that yearning to feel a feeling that you can't even fully describe or understand um it it's a really powerfully circuitous song i think Agreed. Uh, and I'm just going to add one more vote in my own brain for being alive because it's my favorite Sondheim song ever. One of the things that I love so much about it is the the transition that happens within the song. So many of the I wants uh, in Sondheim's musicals are so much more psychological. It's not about, oh, the lady I love or, oh, I want to be... It's, it's, it's a psychological shift. That's what the central characters are hoping for. So in the beginning of being alive, it's... Uh, 
he's describing the annoyance of someone to hold you so close, somebody or someone to hurt you too deep. And then once the middle of the song happens, that character has a moment and it turns into a command. Somebody hold me too close. Somebody hurt me too deep. And it turns into something that he's actually looking for which is a revelation even to him. Uh, but then there are also some some younger characters that have these sort of revelations that aren't as intense emotionally, but they are for that young that young mind. And one of those is Jack and Into the Woods with Giants in the Sky. This is such a happy, hopeful song about I've I've seen some stuff and now I've learned my lessons about it, but it's just so happy and like the, the <laughs> melody and the tune is so happy and he's talking about how excited he is because there are actual literal giants in the sky and I've seen them and I've learned so many things about myself. Uh, I also really love uh, "Everybody Says Don't" from Anyone Can Whistle, Ooh, which the first is appearance of musical, Anyone Can Whistle, which is a musical. I encourage all of you to check out. There are some, dare I say, straight up bangers in Anyone mm-hmm. Can Whistle, <laughs> and one of them is this. Again, we've talked about sort of the quickness and the patter that Sondheim writes in his lyrics and then the rhythms that go with those lyrics. And everybody says don't, at least in its original form, is kind of the male another hundred people uh, because it's so fast and so quick and like everybody says don't, everybody says don't, everybody says but it goes so fast and it, it starts with all these negative things and then the character comes in and says but I say do this they're saying don't, I say do I think you should try, I think experiences are meant for having and so it's this really like uplifting piece that's also a real bear to memorize and sing uh, and then in the beautiful but creepy category we have Joanna <laughs> from Sweeney Todd, uh, which is not the judge's you know, version. Not the judge's version, but <laughs> yeah, it's one yeah. of those pieces that, like, people will people some not anybody on this panel because you know we're all grown and we know how to (laughs) listen to music correctly but some people will push this narrative that Sondheim songs aren't melodic and one of the things that you can do is play them Joanna it's beautiful it's lyrical it's absolutely melodic uh there's a couple of seconds at the very end of each of the main main themes where there's a little like turn a little dig mm-hmm. uh melodically speaking that feels a little bit atonal but everything else is beautiful and sing-songy and you know if if it's performed on its own it's absolutely beautiful in the context of the piece it's a little creepy but it's still beautiful <laughs> definitely <laughs> creepy on that number but i get to go last this time oliver camacho you can kick off the voting you know this one was tough for me because as an artist <laughs> i feel like finishing the hat uh relates so much but uh, as Matt was saying earlier, sometimes, you know, you get these pieces, these Sondheim things where you have to like hear it more than once to actually understand what's happening. Whereas a song like Being Alive, um, on first hearing, you know exactly what it's about. And it can even be sung very badly. And it still is very effective. It's just the length of the melody. It's um, yeah, how it builds and its climax. And uh, the actual words obviously just really cut to the bone so i'm gonna go with being alive i feel like uh uh, this is kind of a tough one for me because i I, uh, again i i think that sondheim is at his best in those moments where there's big groups going on um and then the of course the the big female solos so whenever i go to a, a a sondheim you know show i i i tend to sort of like kind of skip over mentally the 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 uh the male solos to a certain extent um, but one that does stick in my head, and I think it's for the reasons you said, Ashley, is the uh, uh, jo- uh, Joanna um, 
the I like the way like harmonically it like it like it really like you sit back and I I feel like it's the kind of of song that you would hear in a lot of musicals of the time and currently today too where you just kind of like you know you're expecting this nice like you know stalkery kind of you know. Uh, you know, maybe that's a good thing in, in, in older musicals, you know, where like he's following you around. He's going to get that girl, you know, he's going to, you know, but the, the acknowledgement of how weird it is, um, even when that's like, honestly, in that show, the least creepy thing that happens um, uh, is the uh, is that that little harmonic acknowledgement of what's going on always really hits me. And I really enjoy it whenever I hear it. So I'm going to hand it to uh, Sweeney Todd for this one. I mean, really, all five of these should be getting their own award. Seeing the, the selection Giants in the Sky from Into the Woods reminds me of a, a dear friend of mine who auditioned for the role of Jack. He gets that first chord when he's on Jishni. He busts out, <laughs> There are skyants in the jai. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to vote for Joanna simply because it's uh, not for the title character in the show. It's, of course, Anthony's song. It is so complex. Mm. It is so dark musically, textually, emotionally. Let's take a listen. I feel you, Joanna, I feel you, I was half convinced I'd waken, satisfied enough to dream you, happily I was mistaken, Joanna. I'll steal you, Joanna. I'll steal you. Do they think that walls can hide you? Even now I'm at your window. I am in the dark beside you. Buried sweetly in your yellow none other but beloved character actor victor garber in the role of antony on the original cast recording of sweeney todd noted homosexual and as i have said yes noted homosexual um one of the things about joanna that yes it's very creepy but a, a joke that i constantly make is it's a real good thing that she liked him back otherwise this oh, could yeah. have been a very oh, yeah. much more <laughs> disturbing musical her. i'll steal you joanna yikes but she's into it she wants to be stolen we're heading into our final category, which is, is, of course, best finale. Before we do that, we want to just touch on Sondheim's relationship to opera, of course, without getting into a big, long argument about whether Sweeney Todd is an opera or not. It is and isn't. Is it my is answer. and yeah. isn't. Sondheim, opera, what's the overlap, Matt? Yeah, so this, this came up earlier in our show that he has always been very clear. He's a very opinionated man. When you read an interview with him, you come away knowing what he thinks. Um, And he has always been very clear that he hates opera. And I really think that what it comes down to, like, that's such a weird thing for him to say to me as someone who loves both Sondheim and opera, because they, um, even though they don't do the same thing, they're similar. Like, they're similarly complex. They're similarly, like, Gesamtkunstwerke. Um, (laughs) And I think it's more about his 
a question of vocabulary, musical and um, like dramatic vocabulary and like what fits natively in his mouth in like in terms of how sweeping it is and in terms right. of how generality, like how general the statements he is trying to make is. Sondheim is very much about immediacy. It's about detail. Um, I mean, the man wrote a musical about pointillism in the style of pointillism. <laughs> um, and I think that it it isn't it isn't a question of like complexity. It is that opera looks at humanity kind of zoomed out, and Sondheim looks at humanity zoomed in. Um, and in terms and on top of that, like in terms of the musical vocabulary, like when he really wants to go for those deep gut punches, so often the sound he goes for is like that big, brassy woman woman of a certain age belt. There, there's a piece that I'm going to read like af- as soon as we're done taping this by Rachel Syme in the New Yorker about Sondheim loved a brassy dame, and I haven't read it, but like just from that title and all the examples we've named in the show already, like I can imagine where we're gonna go with it. <laughs> um and. Every show, like, is so tethered in its own time. It's very topical. It's very specific. But it also has reveals some kind of universal truth. Um, and I think that's what makes it so dramatically satisfying as musical theater. I think that's what makes these shows, like, really tie together and, and hang as, like, one work instead of, like, a string of songs or a review or a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, which like was very ambitious for his time. But you sit there and watch it now and you're like, Oh my God, guys, come on. Can I just, before I forget to say this, uh, add one more thing that ties Sondheim to opera from just hearing all the tributes and learning more about him uh, and how he uh, really crafted songs uh, specific for specific singers. Like they're bespoke Mm -hmm. pieces of music and you you know, if we didn't have recording technology to document everything, we could actually learn a lot about singing technique or the whatever the the ability of these original cast members based on how he wrote. And that goes way back to thinking about, you know, Kutsoni and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, yeah. Mozart, Weber sisters, you know, that type of stuff, you know, like they are really works that showcase what a specific person can do. Yeah, it, it's and, almost like a throwback if you want to compare Stephen Sondheim to opera. I feel by the time that Sondheim was writing, you have to also consider the state of opera at the time was dominated by sort of like the really conservative audiences who were listening to stuff that was then 70 years old or more, yep. or the incredibly new hyper-experimental stuff that only I will listen to. Literally uh, only you. <laughs> only me. And I think that um, Sondheim really wanted these things to be immediate. Of speaking to the audience, it really does remind you of Mozart thematically, if not you know tonally and uh, uh, and lyrically. Um, but it really do- does remind me of the spirit of like a Marriage of Figaro or something, with how it's speaking to mm-hmm. its audience. And to Oliver's point, like not only was he writing these songs for specific people, but a lot of the same people come back from show to show. Merle Louise was in like four of them. Robert Westenberg is in a bunch of them. Bernadette Peters is a noted Sondheim <laughs> interpreter. Barbara Cook. George Hearn, Lee Remick, Angela Lansbury, yep. like the list goes Daddy. on and on of like people with really strong Liz Calloway associations with Mandy Patinkin, with him and his music and his like musical drama. Right. And the man can write a musical and not only can he write a musical, he can write a finale. Mm. A lot of the best pieces in his uh, musicals, as we've said time and time again, are the ones that really let multiple people in on the fun. Um, and the counterpoint 
as Ashley said, will break your brain. Um, and they just send you out into the house with your toes tapping and you're whistling the tunes and you're like, is that how that tune goes? I can't quite remember. It's close <laughs> enough. I have it in my head, but like I can't make it come out into the world. Well, there's four finalists for best finale. Of course, they could be from either act in a given show. Talk us through those. I have a feeling this is going to be impossible to decide. I want to do these as a sandwich, so I'm going to start with what I consider to be maybe the consummate act one finale, um, which comes from A Little Night Music, his uh, sen- his operetta uh, comedy of errors, comedy of manners, and that is um, beloved of opera scenes programs everywhere a week in the country. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it might be the most Sondheim-y Sondheim there is. Just the <laughs> artistry comes through, the craft, the wit, the complexity, the partner with Jonathan Tunick again here, like uh, g- going into the final chorus, there's a quote from Rosencavalier um, that it. happens in the orchestra that's like making fun of the May-December romance between two of the characters. <laughs> um, I mean, just come on. It's got that kind of like off to the races aspect of it that you expect of all the best Sondheim where like, we're just going to do it and we're going to go. And hopefully we all end at the same time. The Rossini crescendo of the American musical theater. (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, what's your pick for an act one finale? Speaking of act one finales, um, again, We've got to go back to our friends at Sweeney Todd and a piece called A Little Priest. This is really what becomes what this whole show is about, which is a very bizarre show, by the way. Uh, But sometimes he's battling his own musicality and wit and lyricism all at the same time in this finale which is a duet between mrs lovett and sweeney todd you know and of course sweeney's this exiled barber he's coming back he wants to get revenge through murder and his companion sees this opportunity to not waste these victims uh and so the conversation turns into this rhyming battle she says how about a little priest she means a piece of a dead priest in a pie folks that's what she's talking about (laughs) and there's this really amazing central uh central battle where it's it's almost like a musical theater rap battle in a way where <laughs> Lovett will hand out, you know, how about this? And then Sweeney will say, you know, some sort of response to it that's a direct rhyme. And it goes back and forth and back and forth until finally Mrs. Lovett throws out the term locksmith. <laughs> and not even Stephen Sondheim can rhyme anything with locksmith. So then there's just <laughs> silence and a grand pause before the music goes on. Uh, and it's just so witty and smart. And, and one of the other lines that... Bo- oh, it's so boy. <laughs> And one of my favorite lines besides the rap battle is, uh, and we have some shepherd's pie peppered with actual shepherd on top. I've just begun. Here's the politician so oily. He served with a doily. Uh, so again, <laughs> put it on a love bun. a little priest. Never know Sweeney if he's Todd. going to run. <laughs> and now we're going to move on to some act two finales. Uh, and my vote in this category is children will listen, which is the closer of act two for into the woods, which I don't know if it's been very clear. I think that's probably one of the most perfect musicals ever. Uh, and I think it's definitely my favorite musical of Stephen Sondheim's. And like a lot of the other people on the panel was also my first exposure to Sondheim. And it again, broke my brain. Uh, and so what this act finale does act two finale rather, is it weaves together what's left what do you do when all of these tragedies and these losses and these twists and turns have occurred what's left how do you go forward how do you move on uh and what are the lessons that you should have learned along the way uh 
careful the things you say because children will listen uh, because we're talking about fairy tales and what are these fairy tales supposed to teach our children and is that something that we actually want? Uh, maybe I wasn't meant to have children. Don't say that of course you were meant to have children, but how am I going to do it by myself? You're going to tell the kid what you know. You're going to do the best you can with what you have. And so the 742 characters that you saw in the beginning will all come back at some point after some beautiful melodies and some beautiful lyricism for another percussive ending that ties everything up in a beautiful neat bow and for act two finale i i must i have to go with the epilogue of the ballad of sweeney todd uh which is the framing device that ties that whole piece together of the greek chorus sings the ballad of sweeney todd attend the tale of sweeney todd and after the final um death of the opera musical whichever it is it's both um they all, every dead character comes back on stage and sings one final ballad of Sweeney Todd. But there are just enough twists that even though it's a song you've heard like six times at this point, it is still surprising. It's still shocking. It is chilling. It's so hard. <laughs> the orchestrations are incredible. Um, it like gives you chills. When I was a kid, I was like kind of scared of this song. Um, and <laughs> this, this was the Sweeney Todd was the first on-time musical that I saw that ever gave me the bug. Uh, and I saw it, funnily enough, to tie this all back to the beginning of this episode, I saw it at a community theater in Meadville, Pennsylvania. The very theater that I drove by about five minutes after I stopped filling my car with gas on my way back out to the highway. Um, it's a theater that like my grandparents did a lot of work to make sure that it survived. And uh, those same grandparents uh, are the ones who are largely responsible for my love of theater, my love of music mm. for being a performer to begin with. So just like the layers of intimate personal connection that I have with this musical, like ogres, onions, Stephen Sondheim, the <laughs> loss that we feel is personal because his music <laughs> is part of who we are. We are going to uh, let the voting start with Weston for this final round. Well, uh, I mean, I've I've gotten in trouble for uh, roasting Sondheim before, um, uh, which is not a, a probably a, a story for a podcast. It's a tribute for him, uh, but I do think that uh, whenever I come across uh, an opera person who says they don't like Sondheim, I feel like they're always like, "But Sweeney Todd's pretty good." I have such a soft spot for the show. It's it's the one I go back to that, like, you know, um, even even if someone even if I'm like saying, like, I don't know about Sondheim, I'm more of an opera guy. I'm I'm that person who's like, I really like uh, a Sweeney Todd. And I think it's uh, great to put the finale of Act Two as my pick for best finale uh, of Sweeney Todd. I mean, this is virtually impossible. It's, Weekend in the Country is just such amazing music, sweetie, of course. I'm, I'm surprised that I'm saying this, but hearing you talk, Matt and Ashley, um, I, I'm going to pick Into the Woods Children Will Listen. There's something mm -hmm. so surprising about the sentiment of that, the way it addresses a very complex idea without being preachy, without telling you what to think in such beautiful lyric music, which we haven't necessarily heard anywhere else in that show that's going to be my vote wow it looks like we're gonna have a three-way tie here yeah, as um, it should be ooh, yeah. what I a finale i honestly think that's fitting <laughs> totally and I'm, I'm, it's an ambiguous finale <laughs> i'm actually surprised that wesson didn't go my direction uh, because of the electra of it all uh a little priest <laughs> coming off the i know we didn't talk about epiphany but coming off of that 
you know, major chord, minor chord, major chord, minor chord, clash uh, that concludes epiphany and then going into a little priest that that last whatever 10 minutes, 11 minutes of that first act is very impactful. And uh, little priest cracks you up after you've just been terrified by epiphany. So um, I feel like, uh, yeah, if you want to be horrified and hear some good singing and then have a laugh, I think end of first act of Sweeney Todd. Hey, see what we got here then? We got to tinker? No, 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 something pinker. Taylor? Something paler. Potter? Something hotter. Butler? Something subtler. Locksmith? Lovely bit of clock. Maybe for a lark. Then again, they sweep if you want it cheap and you like it dark. Try the financier. Peak of his career. That looks pretty rank. Well, he drank, now it's bank cashier. Never really sold. Maybe it was old. Have you any beetle? Next week, so I'm told. Beetle isn't bad till you smell it and notice how well it's been greased. Stick to priest. Now, you may find this one's a little bit stringy, but then, of course, it's fiddle player. No, 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 no. It's not fiddle player. It's piccolo player. How can you tell? It's piping hot. Then blow on it first. <laughs> the history of the world, my sweet. Oh, Mr. Todd, oh, Mr. Todd, what does it tell? Here's who gets eaten and who gets to eat. And Mr. Todd, too, Mr. Todd, who gets to sell? But fortunately, it's also fear that everybody goes down. doesn't appeal to you. How about a spot of Rear Admiral? Too salty. I prefer General. With or without his privates? <laughs> we is extra. Bryn Turfel and Emma Thompson. Yes, that Emma Thompson singing a little. Priest, it is time to wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Oh my goodness. I talk for days and weeks and months and years about Stephen Sondheim. We have to stop. Good call, bad call. Oliver Camacho, you get to go first. Uh, good call to my co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, who was the first person to introduce me to not getting married today. Um, I think we were doing some gig, or we used to be in this group that did a bunch of um, mixed cabaret-style performances where we'd mix classical with not classical and uh, I remember hearing her sing this uh, when I, w- I barely knew her as a person. And I was like, oh, that song is really hard. <laughs> I don't know how people do that. It is um, like, I don't know. It feels like, where do you breathe in that thing? And uh, it, you can hear no every way. word. I mean, like, it's written so well that you understand what's happening. Um, but it feels like it's going by so fast that there's no way anybody could comprehend it. But it's it's really an incredible piece. And I wish we had a clip of Ashley singing it right now. 
I can mm-hmm. still do it, but we won't do it now. <laughs> Matt Cummings. One of the things that really encapsulates my love for Sondheim is the documentary now episode of making fun of the documentary that they made of recording the company cast recording, which is called Co-op. John Mulaney plays Stephen Sondheim and does it perfectly. It's and so just good. like the specificity of what they paradise, like the mouthfulness, how ridiculous the references in his lyrics are, the percussiveness, uh, his ability to make lists. Um, it, it, the aesthetics are perfect. And if you are a Sondheim lover after the show, you should definitely check out that episode. It's on um, Netflix and the cast recording they recorded is on Spotify. Weston Williams. I have a bad call relating to Sondheim. Uh, The one time I performed anything that was Sondheim related was a performance with with a good friend of mine in college uh, where he sang Agony together. And it was right after the film version came out where with Chris Pine and they tear the shirts open. And I did tear my shirt open in front of all my lovely friends. And uh, that was my Sondheim experience. Dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. We're so sorry for you, audience. (laughs) Ashley Hardgrave. I have two little YouTube nuggets for you. Uh, the first is we've we've talked a little bit about Sondheim's humor. He he was just so funny and he was quick and he was witty and he was bright. Uh, and he wrote a parody song called "The Boy From," and it's a it's a parody on sort of the uh, the bossa nova boy from Ipanema. And it's uh, it ended up eventually in "Side by Side" by Sondheim. But there's a really hilarious recording of Linda Lavin doing it for his 90th virtual birthday tribute last year. Uh, so if you google linda lavin the boy from it'll pop up it's two minutes of time that it's absolutely worth your time the second one is uh in the wake of sondheim's passing of course he was a big you know he was a titan in the broadway community and so a few days after his passing on i believe the 26th of november a number of broadway uh veterans and current performers got together to sing in a group uh the tune sunday from sunday in the park with george and to hear that many talents that many powerful voices coming together to sing sunday in that one moment is is very i i have cried every time i've watched it and that's been about four so uh yeah have, have a little weep in in old stevie's honor i got a bad call and a good call as well bad call a show we haven't talked about yet would be gold or Wise Guys or Bounce or Roadshow, whatever you want to call it. I remember working at the Goodman Theater here in Chicago in 2003. When Sondheim came into the building, that place went absolutely bonkers. Sadly, that is not what the audience thought of that show. And it sort of withered and tried to come back and sort of went into a bit of obscurity. So He's many not good. <laughs> good calls, though, for Stephen Sondheim. Uh, directing Sweeney Todd, one of the absolute joys of my life. Seeing John Doyle's production of Sweeney, of Company, when the artists also sing and also play instruments is absolutely phenomenal. Check out John Doyle's work. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer, he's Norm Waddell, and he's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Drop us a line about Stephen Sondheim. Get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin. Subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher Radio. Favorite the show. Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, 
I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you send in the clowns. We're back with an all-new show next week. We catch up on the two-minute drill. Well, probably be at least a three-minute drill. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more hot pies. Join us.